Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. Open your Bible, if you would, please, to the book of Acts. And if you've been with us, you know. And if not, you're about to find out that we're, gonna, we're working our way through the book of Acts. It's probably about a year's study. And I reference it, and we do frequently as the book of Acts, if you look at the title page of chapter 1, verse 1, and it'll say, the Acts of the Apostles. This is an important book. It's a, a transitional book. We have in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we pick up in the book of Romans, and we get primarily from there, not, not exclusively, but primarily Paul's writing. And this book of Acts gives us a continuation of what the apostles were doing. John Stott suggests a title for the book, more appropriately it would be, and it's easy when I read it to you, you'll see why this title didn't catch on. The Continuing Works and Deeds of Jesus by the, His Spirit through the Apostles. Makes you appreciate the book of Acts even more when you, when you read it. But that's what it is. Uh, I always enjoyed, when I taught a book, uh, week one, kind of doing the background. And whenever I drop in, and now my role is in a lot of places where I go, teaching here, uh, when I'm at Scottsdale Bible Church or the other campuses, is I'm coming in in the middle or, or somewhere in a series. I like to make sure we remember what we're studying and why. William Barclay writes this. There are two ways of writing history. There's a way which attempts to trace the course of events from week to week, day to day, and there's a way which, as it were, opens a series of windows and gives us vivid glimpses of great moments and personalities of the period. The second way is the book of Acts. So there's two ways to kind of look at historical events. In, in my library, on my bookshelf, there's a four-volume set on the Civil War. That, that would fall into that first category. There's a one-volume, if you're somebody who's kind of been intrigued by the Civil War or should be, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the most fascinating studies outside of Scripture you'll find, there's a single volume called Battle Cry for Freedom by James McPherson. It's, I'm doing it from memory, I think it's like 750 pages. So it's, 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 it's a work, but it's really good. And then I have four or five uh, short histories of the Civil War. And that would be that second category. That's the book of Acts. Luke is writing... Okay. Remember we said this essentially could be Luke volume 2, the gospel being volume 1. Now he picks this up. Luke is writing and he drops in and he records these episodes, these vignettes. It's not a detailed history. It's there to capture our imagination and to fill in, to some extent, the gaps Again, Barclay writes, in one sense, Acts is the most important book of the New Testament. It is the simple truth that if we did not possess Acts, the book of Acts, 
we would have apart from what we could deduce from the letters of Paul, no information whatever about the early church. So this is really a key book. Within the 28 chapters, chapter 2 is considered important. In, in fact, one author writes this simple sentence. The second chapter of the book of Acts is one of the pivotal portions. Now, pivotal is one of those words we use all the time, and, and we do that in language a lot. And, and I love to go back and go, well, what does that word mean? Because I think I know what pivotal means. Dictionary says, very important, vitally important, synonym, critical, key, crucial. So, so, so get this now. Here's a critical book, and here's a pivotal chapter in the critical book. So what Tim taught last week, this week, and then next week, I, th I, I think, I don't know where they're going next week, but I would assume we finish chapter two. This is really critical. So you're here at an important time as we study. In the book, the key verse is found in chapter one, verse eight. Jesus is speaking and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Okay, if we were at summer camp right now, I would say, look up here, okay? I, I want you to get this. That verse is important, and I don't want this to be academic. I want you to Photoshop yourself in to verse 8. This is written clearly, Jesus is speaking to the, I got it, I got the context but it's to all believers of all time. Those of you that just took communion, you have a power. Again, Tim talked about it last week. Dunamis, dynamite. The only problem with dynamite, and that's where we get the English word dynamite, the only problem with that image is we think of dynamite oftentimes as blowing things apart. You have a power not to blow things apart, but to bring things together. There's supernatural power. And God gave every believer, the Holy Spirit, for this big reason. You are a witness. Your life is to be a testimony. Everywhere you go, your Jerusalem, in the house, your uh, Judea, in the neighborhood, Samaria, in the city. And, and, and sometimes when I hear that, I'm to be a witness, my, my fear is we get a picture of, I need to get shots and pills and a visa and a passport and go. That's not the image. The image is as you're going. There's so many illustrations of this that I've seen over the years, some in my own life, some in others, this is like the best. I'm doing a memorial service one day over in the other building. I don't even know what they're called anymore, whatever the other building is. And it was for a guy, I didn't, I didn't really know him. We'll call him Bob. Here's why we're going to call him Bob. That's his name. Okay? So we'll call him Bob. And we're doing this, go around the room, and share. And those are, those 
can be risky times, but they can be sweet times. And, and this lady got up and said, Bob was such a terrific man. Bob was such a sweet man. Bob was so instrumental in my life. God used Bob to bring me to faith in Christ. And, and then uh, I was kind of curious what happened, but she didn't say. She sat down, and then she popped right up, which was great. And, and, I, and, and then I said, yes? And she said, I'm a, I'm a checker at, I, I think it was Fry's. I'm checking out at Fry's. And, and I would think that would be a hard job with dealing with a lot of people in stressful situations and coupons aren't right and things don't, I mean, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. The weight's not right. I don't want those bananas. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm revealing. I wouldn't want to be a checker at fries. <laughs> and she said, Bob would just always so nice. He was so, there was, there was something different about him. And so one day he's coming through, and it was the day I was having a really serious problem, and, and he saw that, and, and he said, are you okay? And I said, not really. And he said, is there anything I can do to help? And I said, I'm on break in a few minutes. Maybe we could talk. And she had never talked to him other than, you know, thank you. You know, are those the plums you want? Whatever the question is. And she sat down, and she shared her life, and Bob shared Christ with her, and it was a moment of salvation. That's witnessing. It's just as you go, and you have that power. Now, Jesus has told the apostles, this is going to happen. You're going to receive this power. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 2, last week, and Tim taught it. Suddenly there was a, a came from heaven a, a sound like a, a violent wind and there appeared tongues of fires and they were, verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we're gonna, I'm going to explain the setting more in a minute, but for now, suffice to say, the city is filled with Jews who are there on a pilgrimage. They're from different regions. They speak different languages and they heard the apostles speak in their tongue. Not, not an utterance that needed interpretation, their native tongue. So it would be like if you were here today from Germany, and I'm speaking, and all of a sudden, I begin to speak German. Not trained, I don't know it, you hear it. And the message, we pick it up in verse 11. They heard their tongues they heard this, and, and, and they were speaking, not gibberish, but of the mighty deeds of God. Here's who God is. And the result was they were amazed. They were greatly perplexed. The, uh, Eugene Peterson, in a paraphrase, the message says, their heads were spinning. They couldn't make heads or tails of any of it. They're, they're flopping around, wondering what's going on, and here's what happens. You get two reactions, and it's oftentimes the two reactions you get in a spiritual setting like that, even today. You got a group of people saying, well, what's going on? What does it mean? And another group that quickly want to turn away from it and, and said, they're drunk. 
Now, I love to sit and speculate. The problem with it is it's speculation. But I love to speculate, what did they see? What did they see that made a plausible explanation they're drunk? I don't know. But in the middle of this, Peter, led by and filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 14, Peter took his stand with the 11, and he raised his voice, and he declared. The, the word means to boldly proclaim with a sense of urgency. He's declaring something as fact. We live in, in a, for me, and, and, I, and I'm expressing my own frustration, a very... A very troubling time for a variety of reasons, but I'll give you the umbrella reason for me. The Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year for 2016, do you know what it was? Post-truth. Post-truth. And, and, and what it means is that people are now moved more by emotion than by fact. Uh, I have routines. They might be called ruts. But Sunday, I, I've got a definite routine. I, I get up Sunday morning. Uh, I have watched for 30 years CBS Sunday morning. Comes on at 7. And then I tape Meet the Press in... 11 and a half minutes, I'll be taping Sunday morning with Chris Wallace and meet the press, and I will have already taped George Stepanopoulos. And then sometime today or tomorrow, I'll get through those and figure out what's going on. Well, last week, one of the president's representatives was on all of those, and I don't want to make, don't make, don't, don't let this be political. I don't want, if, if, if you want to argue politics, feel free to email me. My email address is Tim Maughan, okay? <laughs> I, I don't want to dialogue. I don't want to talk to you. If you want to talk about Iowa football and signing day tomorrow, I can talk about that. But I, I don't want, I'm not trying to be political. I want to make the point. They were arguing about something, uh, crowd size at the inauguration, I believe that's relatively measurable. And so there was this number. And the president's representative came on and said, now think about this. We have alternative facts. I don't even know what that means. Two plus two is four, but I guess you could say five. That's the world you live in. It's a very difficult world. Peter's standing up, and he's saying, I'm not giving you alternative facts. I'm giving you the facts. Now, I want to dismiss something right away. Verse 15, these men aren't drunk. It's the third hour. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Even Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett know you got to wait till 5 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. But I will tell you what happened. Now, this is really important, I think. So important that I made a slide out of it. Here's the context of the setting. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived at this time, tells us that oftentimes the city of Jerusalem, which normally had a population of 150,000, would be swollen in numbers to well over a million. The city was packed. The suburbs are filled. Out on the hillsides, there are many camps of pilgrims. It is this multitude that this miracle is directed. Now, this becomes very important in how I approach this subject and, frankly, how you hear it. These were not Gentiles. They were Jews. So let me give you a context. In 2016, the population of Tempe was 161,719. The capacity of the revamped Sun Devil Stadium is 56,000. 232. Imagine Sun Devil Stadium filled, which will take some imagination, by the way. <laughs> Maybe a couple of wins, but for sure that. But imagine, okay, get this now. Imagine Sun Devil Stadium filled, empty, and filled again 15 times, about 850,000 people, and dumped them into Tempe shrink the geographic size and take away all the hotels and the restaurants and that's the setting you have. And you've had it for weeks. And it's primarily, and the point I want you to grab here, primarily Jewish audience. So Peter stands up and he has a three-point sermon. Here are his three points. Number one, he's going to explain to you what just happened. They weren't drunk. Here's what you saw. Number two, he's going to proclaim Jesus, declare Jesus. And number three, he's going to ask them to respond. When I'm teaching, my request of you is to evaluate me this way. What did he say? Is it true? So what? And we could add, if we wanted to, now what? We could add the now what to the so what. So I'm supposed to do it, now what? So that's Peter's intention here. Look at his explanation. He quotes from the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. Now it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even my bondservants, both men and women, uh, in those days will pour forth uh, my spirit. They will prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky. He said, there's this day coming. They know about it. I look, if you have the text in front of you, if you look at verses 17 through 21 and verses 25 through 28, you'll notice the font is different. The font is different because he's quoting Old Testament passages from the book of Joel, from the book of Psalms. I don't have the ability, frankly, to fill all of that in, but if I took the time and studied 
I'm not sure you have the ability to, to fully understand, certainly not they like they would, raised in this, the impact of this moment. This is a gigantic moment. He's trying to explain what happened, and he's going to explain, frankly, the wrath of God. He, he quotes from Joel 2. Here's what happened. A plague of locusts has hit the land. The locusts had come, and they had eaten everything green. Now, in an agricultural-based economy, they'd wiped out the economy. They destroyed this nation. Joel comes in the middle of this. He doesn't come along and say, make Israel great again, and I'll bring back jobs. Okay, not taking a shot there. I'm saying he's got an opportunity. He's got an opportunity to say everything's going to be okay. He doesn't say that. He says, I got news for you. It's going to get worse because there's a judgment that's coming. There'll be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but then there's going to be this enormous judgment. You see it referred to in verse 19, 20, 21. There'll be this time and blood in the sky and these end times. And they would get it. God is patient. You may be here today and you're going, I've been around this a while or this is new. And that's pretty interesting and someday I'll get to it. Here's my point. You don't know if you got someday. That's what Joel is saying to these people. The wrath of God is coming I had been a Christian maybe, I don't know, a year or two, and I'm in this small group, and it's the first time I've ever been in this setting. There's maybe 10 of us, and we're going to go around the room and pray. And the guy leading it is sitting to my left, so the music stand represents him. He said, we're going to start over here. We'll go around the room, and Tom, you close. Well, I learned something very important that night. In a prayer circle, you don't want to go last because all the good prayers are gone. <laughs> we prayed for everything. We prayed for the president and the Congress, and we prayed for the cancer, and we prayed for everything. So I'm, 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 I'm nervous. I mean, all, all I got left is to say, God, I only echo what you've heard here today. <laughs> With a guy to my right prays this, Father, Thank you for your infinite patience. And I thought, wow. He's a patient God. He's a long-suffering God. But it's not infinite patience. There's a day of judgment. There was for them and there is for you. And, and Peter is driving home that judgment through that quote. So now he begins the gist of his message. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Now, I think I put a slide in there. There's basically three things he's going to talk about. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what this message is all about. That's all our message. If you go back and read through the book of Acts and you pull out the sermons that are preached, whether by Peter or Paul or Stephen, 
essentially everyone is about for sure the crucifixion and the resurrection, but about Jesus. That's our message. That's all we got from this pulpit and our pulpits around campus, around wherever we are every day. Our message is Jesus. Whether we're talking about dating or marriage or family or business or raising kids or whatever it is, it all treks back to Jesus. So here he goes. Men of Israel, the Lord, the, the men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. That's a killer. <laughs> That's a killer, verse 22. Here's what he's saying. You know this stuff. I, I said I, I like routines. I do. And my normal prep, okay, and it's like I, it, it's funny. I, it kicks in. When I know I'm teaching on a Sunday, I just go into my normal flow. Now, the timing changed a little this week because I wanted to get some of these things on the screen so that you could see them. I think that reinforces it. But, but I pull my stuff together. I get a general understanding of the text by Wednesday or Thursday. Friday's my day when I get everything in a couple of piles. And Saturday morning, I get everything, what I would say is 90% ready. Saturday night, I get my yellow pen and my red pen. Red pen's really important because it's going gonna, it's gonna to help me. I get my yellow pen, my yellow highlighter, my red pen. I put it together. Then Sunday morning, I get up 4.30, 4.45, and, that, and that's, that's it. Whether that takes an hour or whatever, then I get it. I mean, I do it every time. So we're talking last night. Sandy said, how's it coming? And I said, well, it's, you know, I'm explaining it. And we're talking about this very idea here. And Sandy said, think about this. The, the man, he did these miracles. These are supernatural things. And wonders, wonder is their reaction, their amazement to this. And these were signs. And Sandy said, think about this. These people saw Jesus, many of them. They might have been there with palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna. They may have witnessed the, the Via Della Rosa, and they may have witnessed the crucifixion, and they may have been part of a group that Jesus appeared to. You talk about no excuse. And Peter goes right for it, and he says, you know this. You know this is true. He is the man, verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That idea of delivered is the only time the word appears in the New Testament. It, it means to surrender to an enemy or to be betrayed, predetermined. The boundaries are marked out. It's a plan of God. You could humanly, I think, sit back and look at the life of Christ, maybe be one of these people, 
kind of dismiss the miracles and look at this and see the crucifixion and say, well, the devil won. The plan got usurped. And, and Peter's saying, no, that was all part of the plan. That whole crucifixion, that whole betrayal, that was part of the plan. He was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and he was put to death and God raised him again and put an end to the agony of death. It's the resurrection. I was trying to figure it out last night and I don't have a number, but I think 21 Easter's in a row, I preached on Sunday morning at East Valley Bible Church or Redemption Church, I think. And, and I realized after about 10 years that the message on Easter is pretty much the same. So if you were around and you could remember the last 15 Easter's I preached, I basically said the same thing every Easter. I would say Jesus rose from the dead, and then I would say, here are the facts. Now all you got to do is Google it. If you Google, and I prefer you don't do it now, but sometime today, if you Google facts of the resurrection, and I didn't do it, but I'm sure, it'll pop up 10, 15. The evidence, to use Josh McDowell's classic term, the evidence demands a verdict. It's overwhelming. You almost have to suspend logic when you look at the facts of the resurrection. It's the cornerstone of our belief. If you're here today and antagonistic or hostile toward us, you can blow this thing up. It's, um, and, and maybe it's foolish to tell you this because it's, it's giving away our vulnerability. Who, I mean, the, Bill Belichick is not going to give away the playbook to the Falcons for next week, but we're going to give you the playbook. You can blow us apart if you can disprove the resurrection. It's, it's the linchpin. God raised him up again and put an end to the agony of the death. It's impossible for the tomb to hold him. It's the old song, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. We know that he lives. He's alive. He died for your sin. He rose from the dead. He appears. That's 1 Corinthians 15 verses, I don't know, 2 through 5. Larry used to call it the gospel, gospel in a nutshell. He's alive. He's there. And it proves. And so my point on Easter would be he rose from the dead. This is a big deal. This is not just a fact of history that's academic and removed. If he rose from the dead, then you better listen to everything else that he said. And everything else that he said is really simple. You're a sinner. Ephesians 2, 3. By nature, we're children of wrath. Right now, you've got some of these kids. I watched them walk on campus. They're so cute. they got their little dress, especially the girls. The girls, undeniable. They're so cute. Their little hair's just right and everything's right. And they're over there right now whacking on each other and biting each other and knocking each other around. And we're trying to referee and give them a Bible verse all at the same time. And then... <laughs> 
pretend if they were good so they get a star at the end of it. You raise these little creatures, okay? And you never taught them to lie or steal or cheat. They knew how to do that. And that's your story, too. You're a little more sophisticated. You can hide it. I watch the morning news. Never used to, never used to watch local news, but I do in the morning. And, and if you watch, pick an hour, it doesn't matter, six. If you watch, the first 10 minutes would absolutely, it, it could destroy your day. It's the same every day. It's a shooting, it's a fire, it's a rape, it's another shooting, it's a beating. And my flinch is to go, oh, those people are terrible. No, no, that's me. It's just God's restrained me, and I'm a little more sophisticated. It's like you. You'd never rob or steal from your business, but you got paper clips and pens at home. You're Bernie Madoff without any guts is what you are. That's who we are. It's, that's the backdrop. I'm lost. I'm so far into this. <laughs> Somewhere in there and everything will be all right. I don't know. I don't, yeah. And he reads to put an end to the agony of death. Then he quotes in verse 25 through 28. He quotes from Psalm 16. Psalm, 20, Psalm 16, but in our case, Acts 2.5, I saw the Lord always in my presence. One of the writers makes an observation. That's the key to seeing God, is to see him in the present, to see him in this moment. Therefore, I'm glad my tongue's exalted. I won't be abandoned. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You've taught me how to live. It's not just about escaping the agony of death and escaping hell. It's about life here. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And when I hear that, I tend to think of the eternal being way out here, but eternal begins now. How I live now. How I respond to Sandy now. How I respond to the world around me now. Now, Peter tries to to tie this together. And he says, brethren, verse 29, may I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he died and he was buried and his tomb is with us today. And if you let your eye fall upon verse 30 and 31, 32, 33, 34, he's saying David is speaking in the future and he's speaking of a Messiah that will come and rise again and it wasn't him because he's dead and he's buried. Then he quotes in verse 34 and 35, Psalm 110, verse 1. And these are the kinds of things that I always think are interesting. That's the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, I sit at the right hand and I make my enemies a footstool. Here's what he's saying. It's the position of authority. Therefore, he says, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, Lord and Christ. And then, 
what a shot at the end of verse 36. The Jesus who, bam, you crucified. That's what he's bringing home. Now, regarding this passage, John MacArthur writes this. Ever since God's covenant with Abraham, in which he promised to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed, the Jewish people have longed for messianic times. They believe when the Messiah came, the wrongs would be righted and the lead would, be, would lead them to victory over their enemies. Viewed in the context of Jewish expectation, Peter's announcement that the last days, a name for messianic times, had already come was shocking. We read this, that's what I said. I could spend forever and there's rabbit trails in there, but the reality is, remember, you're going to get it. Look at their response, verse 37. When they heard it, they were pierced to the heart. It's the only time the word that is translated pierce appears in the New Testament. It's sudden, it's quick, it's thorough. It seemed to me, maybe my imagination, but in September, October, November, December, the phrase that was on Facebook on everything was jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping picture. This is jaw-dropping, and then it was a picture of a, of a cat or a dog or somebody's kid swimming or something. Okay, well, here's jaw-dropping to these people. And now I want to, and I got three minutes. I want to bring it to you. This could be jaw-dropping for you. You're a sinner, not them. I can look at them and go, how dumb are they? Well, here's my question, respectfully. How dumb are you? What do you need to see? They heard this, and you should ask what they ask. What do we do? How do we respond to this? Verse 38, repent. Repent and be baptized. Repent means turn away. Turn away. In their case... Turn away from trusting this faith that you think is going to please God or this life that's going to please God and, and repent by definition. If I use my hand as an illustration, if my hand repents, it turns from that west wall back to the east wall. I repent, I turn from my effort, from my religion, from my self-righteousness, I turn to Christ. I made a list, and I came up with four. There may be more, there may be fewer. When you hear a message like this right now, you got four reactions. One is you can deny it. Kind of interesting, kind of cute, a lot of science fiction. I don't buy it. That's not me. Most people, when you tell them that they're sinners, they'll push back, but, but you kind of look at it, and they'll go, well, maybe. Some, and this could be a reaction, is be overwhelmed by this. I remember I hit that point in my life. I thought I was saved by doing good. I thought at the end of my life, when I died, God had, and I didn't understand how it worked, but he had a supercomputer, and if I had more bad than good, I went to hell. More good than bad, I went to heaven. And I reached a point my, um, my fourth semester freshman year, uh, I, I reached a point where I, I, I was done. My bad stack was so high that I said, why even mess around with that? And I kind of gave up. That's a Judas approach. 
Here's what most people do. Moral realignment. Religion. I hear there's a problem. I know there's a problem. I'm going to do something about it. That's why the last week of December is Maria Osmond's favorite week of the year. Because she can go, I'm Maria and I lost 50 pounds. (laughs) She knows every year they're going to do it. Because there's a bunch of people like me who are sitting in the last week of December who are saying, okay, it's a na- I'm going to do something about this. Okay? That's why gym membership explodes. Attendance at the gym kind of spikes a little bit for a week or two. I teach Bible studies during the week. I teach one here Wednesday morning, 7 o'clock, right over in the commons. Love to have you join us. First two weeks of the year, you can't get a seat. If you come, a lot of people come, they get their coffee, they go. And I tell them, come back in three weeks. That's that moral realignment. That's religion. You say, I got a problem, it's sin, I'll fix it. The Bible says you can't. The one solution is Jesus. Repent. Repent from your sin. Your problem is sin. It's not you need a better job or a new spouse or a better body. All those things are fine. Well, not the better spouse. But, but, but all, those things, all those things are fine. You know, work on your weight. Work on your intelligence. But your fundamental problem is sin. And the only solution is Jesus. And Peter's point and my point is that's why Christ died. So if you're here right now and you're going, I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. Well, there'll be some men and women here in the front of the room after we're done. Uh, that office is open uh, tomorrow morning, and there's staff that would love to meet with you and to talk about that. But that's the human condition. Now, look what happens real quick, and you've got to go. We're two minutes over, Okay. Look what happens real quick in verse, what, 41 or wherever we are, whatever's next. Verse 39, that's the promise. The result, verse 41, is 3,000 people were saved that day. What do you do then? Next week, I'm guessing, I don't know this, that Tim's going to cover verses 42 through 47. Here's what I know because I was here. The first week, the first message ever preached in this church was Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. This is what a church is to do. This is what a church is to be. We'll look at it next week. Okay, let me pray and and get you on your way. Father, thank you. Uh, I look at that clock, and it just keeps moving, and and we're three minutes and 30 seconds late. God, I can't wait for when we have eternity. In a year, we'll fly by. God, thank you. Thank you, and, and let us feel that sense of urgency if we've never responded, and that sense of gratitude if we have. God, thank you for Jesus, for his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.